And we're recording. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Not Another Military State Podcast. My name is Jacob, and uh, with me today, again, is Liam. How goes it, Liam? Goes well, Jacob. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there. You know, it's a Tuesday. But, uh, so you excited to, this will be the last uh, episode of our Guadalcanal series. It'll be the fifth episode out of, out of the, there's been, you know, four more previously, as, as the term fifth would convey. And uh, so this will be the last episode of the series, you said. Absolutely. I mean, we've we spent the past four weeks talking about Marines uh, and Japanese forces getting lost in the jungle. And while it is an exciting topic, I, I'm looking forward to what else we might explore further down the line. <laughs> Yeah, but getting lost in the jungle, dying of malaria, getting blown up—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's all. They're all having a great time on Guadalcanal. So, uh, so we went ahead the last a episode. Wonderful we, time. Oh yeah, everybody—that's one thing. Any you talk to any veterans about the Guadalcanal, they'll just—they'll just tell you how much fun it was the entire time. That—that's just the through line with all of it. It's just how how much they enjoyed it. I'm sure, as as any Pacific War veteran can attest. But uh, so after the. Um, so we went ahead and talked last time about the Battle of the Henderson Field, which is kind of like this the climactic land Battle of Guadalcanal. I mean, the Japanese attacked the Marines in force in the airfield, you know, come within, I would say, a hair's, hair's breadth of taking it a couple times. But the Marines managed to push them back, and the Japanese suffered massive casualties. So we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the aftermath of that battle. So, uh, so the, after the battle began, or I'm sorry, after the battle ended, the Japanese began to retreat back towards the village of Kali. So once again, this was a brutal slog through the jungle. Uh, numerous suffer- soldiers suffered from hunger and disease. Uh, one Japanese soldier wrote during the march, quote, I'm surprised by how food captures the mind to the degree that one always thinks of it. I tried to think of other things, but I can't. So yeah, if you've ever, I mean, I've never really, of course, like faced that, that degree of starvation, but I've always heard from people that when you do, like food is literally the only thing you can think about. It's just always constantly on your mind. I mean, I, I do actually remember reading an account from, like, a shipwreck survivor who was uh, adrift, like, in the ocean and imperial weeks and weeks on end. He talked about some of the things he would dream about were, like, fish eyes, because, like, he would catch fish and then eat the fish eyes, and those were really good to him, so he would just dream of those all the time. So, it's kind of interesting. But uh, Only the fish eyes? Like, he, he wouldn't dream about eating the rest of the fish? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess the fish eyes were the best part to him, I suppose. Maybe that was just something that really stuck out to him. So he was like, mm, yeah, fish eyes. Yeah, I gotta love them. I've never had Look, one. Man, but hey. Yeah, I, I've never been trapped on the ocean for multiple weeks. If you get desperate enough to start eating the eyes of fish, maybe it turns out they're a delicacy. Who knows? I mean, yeah. Do I, I mean, want to participate in that? No, thank you. But <laughs> the best, The best seasoning, as they say, is hunger. But, uh, yes, so, exactly. Hunger and salt water. Hunger and salt water, yep. <laughs> so uh, at, at the same time, Halsey, Admiral Halsey, started to reinforce the Americans of Guadalcanal, first sending in the 172nd Infantry Regiment and pledging that the 8th Marines would soon be sent as well. So it's uh, they had a little bit of an interesting time getting there. So its troop transported the President Coolidge, uh, immediately bloated into a minefield off the coast of a spirit of Psycho and sunk. Uh, luckily, all but five of its men managed to be uh, rescued. Uh, however, the infantry regiment lost pretty much all of its like heavy equipment. So they're like, you know, they may have been able to get some rifles and some small arms out here and there, but for the most part, all the shit's gone. So, um, and the Kex Air Force also managed to see some reorganization. So uh, as pilots started arriving and rotating out uh, with the veteran pilots, the new pilots are coming in and they're rotating out with the guys who have been there longest. 
and as well as Brigadier General Lewis Woods ended up replacing the fatigued General Geiger as commander of the Texas Air Force uh, in addition to these shakeups. So there's a few different things going on here, some changes in leadership. So uh, right after the battle, though, Vandergriff decided to exploit his victory by pushing the Japanese beyond artillery range of Henson Field and attempt to cut off the retreat of enemy forces at Lunga. So his objective in this offensive was to seize the village of Kukabona and push the Japanese back beyond the Pohai River. So uh, the Japanese at this point, under the command of General Sumiyoshi, were, now needless to say, very threadbare after their disastrous attack on Henderson. So just one example, uh, Oko, who was another general, had only about half of his men, and they were all severely weakened by the previous attack. So they, they have not recovered yet in the least from Henderson Field. So uh, American B-17 bombers started to bomb the Japanese on November 1st, and the first two Marine groups under Major Waltz and Major Whaling uh, managed to achieve their objectives, encountering very little Japanese resistance. Uh, the third group ended up faring differently, with Company C facing very stiff resistance that ended up driving them back. So, but I, I really, I, I can't really just stress how much, you know, how, how much dire straits the Japanese were in at this point. So just as another, a couple other examples. So the 7th Company was down to only 10 men, and the 5th Company was counted 15. And as a reference, Imperial Japanese Army companies at the time were supposed to contain 180 men. So one company is down to 10 guys out of 180, and another guy, company is down to 15 guys, which is just mind-blowing. And, and are they just keeping all these companies together just for the sake of, like, they can say to generals back home, we've still got seven companies on the island, sir. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure probably on paper they were probably separate, but I imagine, I mean, practically speaking on the ground, you'd have to think that the, the source that I used didn't say either way to this effect, but you'd have to think on the ground that, like, if, you know, Company C has 170 guys and Company has 10 guys, you might as well say, okay, Company A, just, just follow with Company C, because you guys are going to be much, much use yeah. on your own. But uh, you'd hope anyways. But uh, so, so Whaling uh, at this point managed to sub in for the Marine companies they were driven back, which allowed Commander Waltz to cut off the Japanese retreat, effectively encircling the Japanese force uh, at, at this time. So there's some very fierce fighting, which actually, interestingly enough, I saw the only authenticated account of an American bayonet charge during the entire Pacific War uh, during this fighting. And the Marines, uh, during this fierce fighting, the Marines managed to throw the Japanese back to Point Cruz. So uh, at this time, the Tokyo Express uh, decided or started to land more soldiers on the coast, and they you know started another cat and mouse game. The Marines are trying to intercept them. So the Japanese managed to land 300 troops and supplies for about 2,000 men. But the Marines managed to intercept the troops shortly after they landed and pushed them back uh, and started continuing their encirclement. And now the Jap, uh, you can really see at this point that the balance of power had really started to shift greatly in favor of the Americans. Uh, General Hattori, who was the overall commander uh, during the Battle of Guadalcanal for all Japanese forces, wrote, uh, quote, the actual situation on Guadalcanal is beyond imagination. So, which, I mean, this guy is seeing some shit. I mean, like, I'm, he's probably been in China. He's probably been fighting all over, you know, the Pacific and all over Asia. For him to say it's beyond imagination, you know it must be really fucking bad. Yeah, st stuff has gone... Uh... More than sideways. Less, You're upside less than, down at this point. Less than stellar. We'll, we'll, we'll say that much. So uh, the Japanese, though, were saved for the time being by the Marines' lack of men supplies. There still hadn't uh, been a lot of men arriving just after the Battle of Henderson Field yet. So the Marines are able to fully take advantage of the uh, of of the uh, of, of their victory in the battle. 
so on November 4th, Vandegrift was forced to pause his attack as his forces started to grow thinner. And then uh, there were about six days of pause, and then Marines started advancing again, uh, reaching the village of Nuliambu by nightfall. So uh, on November 9th, though, Vandegrift renewed his offensive in earnest and attempted to surround uh, Shoji's regiment. So Shoji was commanding a Japanese regiment. And uh, they ended up killing 450 Japanese, uh, but around 3,000 hungry and exhausted men escaped. Uh, those men began retreating to join the 17th Army. And uh, so at this time, they're retreating, and the entire time they're retreating back to the coast, they're being pursued by the 2nd Raider Battalion, also famously known as Carlson's Raiders. I mean, they were the guys that went in, like, before the actual Guadalcanal invasion to start the area. So they're just are pretty tough guys. And so as the Japanese are marching through the jungle, they're constantly just being raided and harassed by these raiders. And then, uh, so eventually they did rejoin this, this, the 17th Army. Uh, but by the time Shoji Regiment rejo- rejoined the 17th, he had only seven to 800 survivors out of several thousand. And then, uh, but only about 20 to 30 were actually fit to continue fighting. So he's got 700 guys out of like 4,000 and only like 30 of them could actually like hold a rifle and fight effectively. So Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. That's, that's what happens when you, we just endure that kind of constant fighting for months on end. Yeah. It's so little supplies. And then, uh, so on November 11th, General Sato arrived with 600 reinforcements and started placing forces on the American flank over at Mount Austin. Uh, so Mount Austin, of course, is that we'll talk a little bit more about that later because some shit goes down on Mount Austin. But Mount Austin is the highest point in Guadalcanal. Uh, the Americans continued advancing towards uh, Cucumbona, unaware of this threat, uh, but ended up being ordered to withdraw back to the Matanka River. So initially, the Americans weren't sure why they were withdrawing. Uh, but the intelligence actually pointed to the possibility that the Japanese were planning another massive offensive. So they kind of start to, uh, you know, like withdraw a little bit because the intelligence thinks that the Japanese might be playing something else. Uh, and miraculously, the American codebreakers actually managed to decrypt the Japanese codes for once and also became aware of the Japanese offensive. So uh, on November 11th, Halsey received the Japanese plans. Uh, from his codebreakers. So the 8th Fleet was transporting uh, large quantities of troops to Guadalcanal on Z-Day. Uh, the 11th Air Fleet at Buen were scheduled to attack on Z-Day minus 3, and a Japanese carrier group was scheduled to attack on Z-Day minus 1. So all this stuff is happening within a few days of each other. Uh, so the only thing Halsey wasn't aware of was that the Japanese were planning to bombard Henderson Field again with battleships. So uh, as part of this offensive, this is mostly a naval offensive, although they do have some transport ships as well, trying to land troops on Guadalcanal. So the Japanese had two main carriers, the Junyo and the Zuiho, and possibly three escort carriers, four battleships, five heavy, uh, five heavy and six light cruisers, and 21 destroyers. Uh, to oppose him, Admiral Halsey had only one carrier, the Enterprise, on with two battleships, uh, four heavy and two and four light cruisers, and 22 destroyers. So at the outset, it doesn't look all that well stacked in favor of the Americans, does it? Not really. I mean, especially in this day and age where naval power is so important in the war, the fact that Japan's bringing more carriers to bear is a little, a little more dangerous for the Americans. Yeah, I mean, it, it just goes to show, though. I mean, I think at the beginning of World War II, the Japanese had probably the largest carrier fleet in the world, and so it's still kind of you know, you know, implementing those reserves and bringing those reserves in. But eventually, as they lose those carriers, though, I mean, they don't have the manufacturing capacity of the United States. So eventually, once they start losing those carriers, they're, they're go, it's going to come pretty close down to the wire. And eventually, the American carriers will outnumber them. But they, they definitely don't outnumber them in this battle. So 
this we talked about the climactic land battle being Henderson Field. Now this is considered the kind of the climactic naval battle of Guadalcanal. Uh, and just the fact that it's called, even though there's been several naval battles around Guadalcanal at this point, this battle is referred to as the naval battle of Guadalcanal. So just to kind of illustrate its importance. So uh, naval battle of Guadalcanal was fought between uh, November 13th and 15th. Uh, it ended up being actually a strategic victory for the United States. So it was the very last, and also it was the last naval battle in the Pacific before the Battle of Philippine Sea in 1944. So there were full pretty much two years before we would see another naval battle on this kind of scale. So uh, during this battle, the Japanese managed to turn back, uh, or sorry, the U.S. managed to turn back Japanese attempts to bombard Henderson Field with battleships, and they managed to sink all the troop transports, preventing them from reinforcing their soldiers on Guadalcanal. So the U.S. ended up sinking two battleships, three destroyers, seven transports, uh, whether on the sea or on land, uh, at the cost of 36 aircraft, nine ships, and roughly 1,732 personnel. So the Japanese ended up losing about 1,900 people killed all in all. So uh, the remaining, uh, so there were some transports that managed to uh, beach themselves at uh, Tessafaronga. And during the battle, though, they were later attacked by American artillery and aircraft from Henderson Field. So only 2,000 troops out of the several thousand, uh, I think it was, I think the figures were close to, I think, 6,000, I believe. So only 2,000 of the troops from the transports landed, and most of the supplies that were completely sunk. So the Japanese would later try to resupply the soldiers again at uh, Tissafaranga, and although they managed to sink a U.S. cruiser, their transports were turned back, keeping much needed supplies from reaching the island. So the Japanese tried once again to just, you know, land a whole bunch of soldiers on the island, this time they intercepted by Halsey because he decrypted the codes, and managed to defeat the Japanese in a massive naval battle. So, yeah. So on December 8th, Vandegrift handed over command of the ground forces to Major General Alexander M. Patch of the U.S. Army. So Vandegrift has been here from the very beginning, and he's finally uh, handing over command to an Army general. So shortly thereafter, the 5th and the 1st Marines would follow him, finally leaving the islands. So this, you might ask why this change of command happened, and it's, it's, you can kind of view this change of command in signaling that the Guadalcanal campaign was shifting from an ongoing active battle to kind of mopping up operations. So typically, this is what happens, you know, in, in during, during World War II. So the Marines are the first to go in. They do a lot of the heavy fighting, and it's, you know, it's brutal. It's a big slog. And then once victory is, you know, more or less assured, then the Army will kind of come in, and then the Marines are needed elsewhere. So the Marines ship somewhere else, and then the Army kind of comes in to take up mopping operations. I mean, in Guadalcanal, because it, it's a little bit different, because of Guadalcanal, the army arrived when victory wasn't really assured, but mostly arrived just because we, they, the Marines really needed them because it was going so poorly for a lot of the time. But uh, but typically what will happen when the Marines land, and then once, you know, it, it seems pretty clear where things are going, then the Marines are sent somewhere else, and then the army kind of comes in to kind of clear out the survivors. So, and then, um, <clears throat> so, excuse me. So due to continued attacks from U.S. aircraft from Henderson Field and naval ships, uh, the Chukuk Express was no longer effectively reinforcing and supplying Guadalcanal. So in contrast, though, the U.S. could finally reinforce its men at will and deliver two fresh divisions in December 1942. So uh, just to illustrate just how bad, again, things are going for the Japanese. So by December 1942, the Japanese were losing roughly 50 men per day due to starvation, disease combat, and malnutrition. So by December 16th, out of the 6,000 men of the 38th Division, only 30% were fit to forage for food, 
and a mere 250 were combat capable. So out of around 1,000 men of the 4th and 16th infantry regiments, two-thirds were sick or injured, leaving only a couple hundred men to hold the front line. So the entire Japanese Guadalcanal, or um, so the entire Japanese army in Guadalcanal at this point was made up of pale, starved skeleton men who subsisted on tree shoots and coconuts. So not not exactly the kind of army you want. Uh, you want to be fighting. Yeah. Them. And there's only like, if my math is right, about like 500 actual soldiers capable of fighting. That's it's it's really nuts. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's it's like you know. You have like you know, divisions that are supposed to be made up of like several thousand men, and only like a few hundred are actually able to like you know perform combat duties and even to forage for food. You know, just it's it's really insane. It's, yeah, it's incredible how like how if you cannot supply your troops with the basics of food, water, medicine to not get malaria, then just your major fighting force is gone. You you've lost the battle before you can even set foot on it. Yeah, I mean, it it's also really speaks to kind of just that really, really intense fighting spirit, that mor- high morale of the Japanese soldier. I mean, you think about the conditions of fighting under. I mean, I think a lot of armies probably would have mutinied, you know, very possibly. I mean, you see during World War One, you know, the the, uh, the French army very famously mutinied due to how, how terrible conditions were on the Western Front in, uh, in 1918. So just the fact that they didn't just like, okay, you know what, we're fucking done with this. Like, get us off this goddamn island. Like, it's... It's pretty incredible. And then, uh, so, uh, second lieutenant uh, Yasu Ko wrote a life expectancy of his comrades. So his quote is very, very poignant here. I, I definitely had to include it. So it's, uh, it's reading quotes. Those who could stand, uh, so he's writing about the life expectancy of his comrades. I don't know if I've mentioned that already. But uh, those who can stand, 30 days. Those who can sit up, three weeks. Those who cannot sit up, one week. Those who urinate lying down, Three days. Those who have stopped speaking, two days. Those who have stopped blinking, tomorrow. <laughs> so he's it's pretty, pretty fucking bleak shit right there. Yeah, he, he's been there long enough to know the signs of walking death or, yeah. or waking death in this case. Yeah, these men are just are absolute I mean shadows, you know, of of themselves. I mean, just like walking skeletons. And then so this leads us uh, naturally to the attack on Mount Austin. So uh, the army at this point decided to launch an attack on Mount Austin, which was, I mentioned earlier, the highest point in Guadalcanal, in order to deprive the Japanese of crucial intelligence asset and acquire a position from which they could launch more flanking attacks against the Japanese. So the Japanese have occupied Mount Austin since almost the very uh, the earliest stages of the fighting, and they've used Mount Austin to gather a lot of intelligence about the airfield and spot U.S. positions. So finally, the army is coming in and saying, okay, we need to actually knock you guys off this this mountain. So um, the 132nd Infantry Regiment came along with a group of native scouts uh, referred to as the, quote, Cannibal Battalion, which I'm not really sure if that's... Um, I didn't have time to look it up. I'm not really sure if that's, like, if they were called Cannibal Battalion just because, like, like an old-timey 1940s racism or because of like there being actual, you know, like them, some of them being actual cannibals. I mean, it's it's a possibility. I mean, there there were some Pacific, you know, tribes that were actually cannibals. But I'm, I just, I just find it funny how they were referred to as the Cannibal Battalion. But uh, that's pretty... uh, I feel like it's a, it might be a little bit mix of both. Maybe yeah, could... maybe they are cannibals, but maybe it's mostly the the racism. <laughs> I mean, it probably is most of the racism. Like, maybe one or two guys, maybe, you know, like, gnawed on a femur here and there, you know? And, but, I mean, like... Who hasn't gnawed on a femur? 
yeah, who, who amongst us has not, you know, for, uh, occasionally partaken in the in the long pig, as they uh, as they want to say. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that name. Wow. Long pig. I've never heard that. I hate. You've never that. heard that? No, that's what they call it. That's no. what some people call it anyway. It's like fucking long. Well, it's a, it has a similar uh, consistency to pork, like you know. So, but uh, that's why they say that like firefighters, like they have a hard time sometimes at barbecues and stuff because it's like the 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 smell of of the you know the roasted pork and everything reminds them of burning bodies. But um, gross. Yep. So anyway, moving on. <laughs> Long pig, one more time. Oh, I had to say it one more time. But uh, so, heavy machine gun fire from the ridge on Mount Austin initially pinned down the army, and it called in artillery and air support. So, Dauntless dive bombers came down and started strafing and bombing the Japanese uh, artillery positions, along with a five-minute artillery barrage. But overall, little progress was made after Lieutenant Colonel Wright of the 3rd Battalion was killed on December 19th. So, over the next few days, the Americans pressed forward. The Japanese said also send in infiltrators to pick off American soldiers as they're pushing up the ridge. So now, fast forward a little bit to December 24th, the Americans encountered the strongest Japanese defensive position of the entire Guadalcanal campaign. This is nicknamed the Gifu. So the Gifu sat west of the soda, Mount Austin, between hills 31 and 27. It was a system of 45 interconnected pillboxes with interlocking fields of fire. Bent into a horseshoe shape, uh, they were buried into the hills, Rimmed inside and out with dirt. The walls are two logs thick and the roofs were three logs thick. They are camouflaged by foliage. They're basically impenetrable by anything less than a direct hit from a 105 millimeter howitzer. So um, moreover as well, at this point, the infantry don't have any flamethrowers and their explosive charges are, uh, require them to get too close uh, to the bunkers. So uh, each pillbox had also had two machine guns and two or three riflemen were manning them. And uh, all... All in all, they were defended uh, by two Japanese battalions, so roughly around five to six hundred men. So, um, if the pillboxes don't sound bad enough themselves, you got to think about the fact that they're also just just the issue of finding the pillboxes too. So, jungle made it really difficult to see past thirty yards, uh, so which helped the Japanese a great deal with their camouflaging. So, like you're you're imagining you're a marine, you're traipsing through the jungle, you can barely see you know thirty yards in front of you. I mean, the Japanese can see you coming most likely. You know, way, way before you can you know, spot the camouflage pillbox. So then they just rip into you with their machine guns and rifle fire, and you're done. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty gnarly. Then uh, on Christmas Day, the 3rd Battalion was pushed back by fire for the Gifu. Uh, they came back the next day for the continued assault. So for several more days, they ended up struggling against the Gifu with the same results. The Americans are kind of just hitting their head against a brick wall for a few days at this point. So then they start, the Americans started patrolling, trying to find a weak spot in the defenses, but they didn't end up finding any gaps or open flanks. They did, however, find a clear path to Hill 27. So at this point, the Americans have suffered about 53 killed uh, during this battle. So fast forward to December 29th, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Nelson uh, came up with a new plan. So his plan was for the 3rd of the 1st Battalions to hit the northern eastern face of the enemy positions, but the 2nd Battalion captured Hill 27 in a kind of a wide enveloping measure. So uh, this required his soldiers to climb up incredibly steep ridges of up to 6,000 yards. Which, I mean, imagine summoning a mountain while you're being, you know, just pinned down by machine gun fire at the same time. It's it's insane. 
And then uh, if you are interested in experiencing this uh, at your local mountain, we have stationed a veteran with an MG42. We have given him several pounds of methamphetamines. Uh, good luck. Oh, all the meth, yeah, meth, and we, you know, oh, don't don't forget, we, we sprinkled in a very uh, very healthy dose of PTSD as well. So, yeah, he yes. he thinks it's Vietnam, right, right over in uh, in, and that, in Virginia. That's all from the American healthcare system. <laughs> Absolutely, got to uh, it's the best the VA can offer. And then uh, so as every as every member of the military will definitely sing the VA's praises. That's that's all that I've heard about them, and nothing exactly. bad whatsoever. And then, uh, so on the 29th, oh, wait, no, I already said that. So on New Year's Day, the 2nd Battalion managed to finally reach Hill 27. And at this point, Nelson was actually relieved of command uh, and replaced with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander M. George. So it's kind of a funny little moment here. So in order to kind of inspire his men and convince them of how kind of shit shots the Japanese were at moving targets, he started casually strolling the length of the front lines and shorts while the Japanese took pot shots at him. And they also were missing. So he did kind of like, like he he's he's definitely like a little 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 uh little braggy you know a little little showy offy but also like the Japanese proved his point I mean they couldn't hit him he was just like walking out in front of the lines so that's kind of on them. I mean yeah if they, if you can't hit a guy who's standing out in the open then I mean what's what's the point of even shooting at him? <laughs> just just I mean you might as well just be throwing rocks at that point. Exactly. And then, um, so on January 2nd, all three battalions advanced on their objectives and made good progress. So the 2nd Battalion managed to capture Hill 27. After entrenching their own positions, they managed to th- uh, throw back six Japanese counterattacks. So overnight, the Japanese continued to attack the 2nd Battalion, but the 2nd Battalion held their ground. Uh, then on January 3rd, uh, the 1st and 3rd came to aid them and managed to seal the gap between the lines. So this pretty much at this point forced the Japanese to retreat or die. And that effectively ends the uh, the struggle up in Mount Austin. So this was the last, uh, the struggle on Mount Austin was the last major land action on the island. In 22 days, the 132nd ended up losing, uh, what's about 132 killed and two, uh, 272 wounded out of around 1,500 men. So these losses, uh, combined with battle exhaustion with losses from disease, made the 132nd Division uh, incapable of further offensive action this point. So there's no record amongst the Gifu defenders, but Lieutenant Ko, uh, you know, same Lieutenant Ko who talked about the starvation of his soldiers, reported that on New Year's Day, the last ration that distributed to its defenders was two crackers and a piece of candy per man. So that's your last meal. Luxury. <laughs> you, you know you're doing great in a war when you have your rations are like will be considered a really poor haul for like a bunch of trick-or-treaters. Like, yeah, you, And you get a saltine, and here's another saltine, and to top it all off, a peppermint. <laughs> here's a Reese's piece for you, you know, don't don't eat it all in one place, you know, really, really, really make that, really make that fucker last, you know, like, goddamn, here's some hubba I got a rock. <laughs> I got a landmine, what? Well, you can't eat this. <laughs> I got a grenade. But uh, so uh, this loss, combined with the previous Japanese losses on the land, sea, and air, made the Japanese uh, commanders finally start to reassess their commitment to the islands. So the Japanese were truly done on the island at this point. So on December 31st, 1942, the Japanese decided to evacuate their forces from Guadalcanal. 
So of course the fighting would um, rage on for another couple months. But at that point, you know, once the Japanese start to evacuate, they're starting to draw things down. It's pretty much just smaller scale mopping up operations. So it's not, in my opinion, it's not super worth getting into. So in February 1943, the U.S. officially declared Guadalcanal secure, finally after six months of intense fighting. So in conclusion, uh, so a few kind of quick facts about the Battle of Guadalcanal. So the Battle of Guadalcanal was the first major offensive undertaken by the United States in the Pacific War. Uh, so as a first major offensive, it pretty much set the tone for what the conduct of the Pacific War would be. No quarter would be given. It was going to be long, brutal, and bloody. So the Marines learned that the Japanese are going to fight to the death, and then the Japanese learned that the Marines are going to do the same. There's going to be no surrender whatsoever. So, um, so Guadalcanal as well, and during, in the future, would serve as a very valuable base for the U.S. throughout the rest of the war, with this airfield being used to support further U.S. operations in the Solomon Islands. Uh, it also was very important because it shattered the myth of Japanese invincibility. So at the very you know, outbreak of the war, the Japanese just run roughshod, of the Americans, the British, and the Dutch, you know, just all throughout, you know, the empire and just take them out one by one. And then so this is finally the first land offensive that managed to actually crack the Japanese down a peg. And, you know, we learned that we can, in fact, defeat them. So, uh, like I also mentioned, it was the longest island campaign of the Pacific War, lasting six months. So in total, the U.S. lost uh, 7,000 dead and 8,000 wounded, whereas the Japanese lost 19,000 dead and an unknown number of men wounded. Which honestly surprised me. I, I would have thought that the casualties would have been much higher just for the sheer scale of just how long they were there. But um, but it's uh, but yeah, I just think that's interesting. And then uh, uh, also, what's important about Guadalcanal is that it cemented just how important air power would be in the Pacific War. So I mean, the Marines, despite just how you know kind of you know crappy the planning phase was for the early stages of Guadalcanal. Uh, it's really the Marines are very very lucky uh, to actually take Henderson Field on the, the second day that they were there. I mean, the, the Japanese had been prepared and had, had you know short up defenses around Henderson Field. It could have gone the other way uh, very very easily. I mean, and just the fact that yeah. the Marines had that base to where they could continually launch aircraft that could you know take out transports, bringing in more supplies and more soldiers. You know, it just it made really all the difference, and it, and it just. It, it illustrated just how different this war, World War II, was going to be in the Pacific. It wasn't going to all be about just, okay, you know, letting guys on an island, you know, fight, you know, fight in the ocean. Like, you know, air power is a very, very important factor in this battle. And it will be throughout the rest of the Pacific War. Yeah, think about the amount of times we, we mentioned, like, and the Cactus Air Force took off and went and attacked, like, a whole squadron of bombers that were going to, just absolutely level the island. And if they hadn't done that, then like, yep, they would have lost the airfield. Just the mm -hmm. importance of air power is truly shown off here in the Guadalcanal campaign. Yeah. And just how important it is to hold a strip of dirt in the jungle in this war. Yeah, I mean, Guadalcanal has absolutely, it's the only thing strategically important about it in this battle is the fact that it's, Somewhat close to Australia, it has an airfield. If it doesn't have the airfield, it is not important whatsoever. So the airfield is issues of all the importance in the world. So um, so the Japanese, uh, after this battle, end up switching up their amphibious defense strategy for the rest of the war. So no longer would they employ a naval defense strategy. Uh, they would start to employ a defense strategy at the water's edge, which means that basically we will have a defensive strategy at the water's edge. It means you basically 
you know, you shore up your defenses, you put machine guns, pillboxes, artillery positions. You basically put all of your hopes on stopping the Marines as they're hitting the beaches. And that is going to massively transform the uh, the conduct of, of the uh, war in the Pacific. I mean, this is, I think, probably one of the last times the Marines are going to land on an island unopposed. Uh, from then on, it's, it's, it's going to just be a complete fight to the death from as soon as they step off the beach. I so, mean, yeah, uh, I mean... You, you see all of that at Iwo Jima, where the Japanese, like, let the Americans land for, I think it was like an hour. Like, they just let the beach fill up with American personnel before all the pillboxes and artillery and small arms fire started. So they could just cause mass casualties. It was, stop them at the beach, or we won't stop them at all. Yeah, I mean, and the Japanese, I think, at that point, had recognized that their Navy is not going to be able to save them at this point. I mean, the U.S. can just produce more ships and have, you know, very competent admirals. Not that the Japanese admirals weren't necessarily competent, but uh, so they, they basically are going to say, like, hey, you know, we cannot, their strategy kind of became, you know, we know we can't necessarily defeat you on the sea or maybe even on land, but we're going to basically cause as much casualties in your forces, just fight as long and as hard as we possibly can, in hopes that eventually the American public will become fed up with the war and then we'll seek a negotiated peace and leave, have some remnants of the Japanese empire intact. So, um, and that is the, uh, that's the Guadalcanal campaign overall. So uh, was there anything that surprised you about this uh, entire campaign? I mean, just like the, I would love to see the, the breakdown for, Japanese casualties more because like obviously they're hiding the number of injured but how many of those 19,000 that had passed away were from starvation or malaria mm -hmm. like, I'd love to know yes they kept throwing themselves at Americans line at American lines but how many did they they lose off the battlefield how many were were simply consumed by the natural effects of the jungle that's like the the more interesting story here that yeah warfare will will tear armies apart and drastically reduce the amounts of men you have but those side effects of being where you are the fighting location always fascinate me and oh no most definitely yeah. I, mean, I mean geography and terrain make all the difference really in a battle i mean if this battle had been taking place in europe it would have been you know, much, much more pleasant. It would still win a, would have been terrible, of course, but it would have been much more pleasant to actually fight instead of, you know, being in this sweaty, humid jungle where you've got, you know, mosquitoes biting every second of every day, leeches, you've got alligators in the river. I mean, you really, I mean, most of these guys, I mean, are are going to come from, like, you know, fairly developed areas for the most part. I mean, either, you know, cities in Japan or in the United States, you know, maybe the, at the very, in the United States, maybe smaller towns. And they've never faced anything like this before. So it's it's just a, it's such a massive adjustment for the soldiers on the ground. And it, it's, it's going to be such a hard thing to manage. And just uh, what, I, what I'm most fascinated by is, I, I mean, I always kind of just get a, a laugh out of like, you know, how many times I was reading the sources and it was like, oh, and then the Japanese got lost in the jungle again. And then the Marines got lost in the jungle again, you know, <laughs> like it's. It's just, and, and the fact that, like, you know, the, the Marines never had any accurate maps of the island, and neither the Japanese, like, during the course of this entire campaign, it kind of, you know, you, you hear about these campaigns, you know, you know, years and years after, you know, oh, the Battle Canal was a glorious moment for the Corps, and it's like, it really was not. So there's a lot of 
they did a, a lot of uh, did a lot of things right, but they also fucked up with a lot of shit too. And um, it's it's worth remembering for sure. Absolutely. But uh, so I think we're gonna go ahead and the Kali episode then. Uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Um, this is the very first series. I'm very happy with how it turned out. Uh, you can go ahead and tune in next week as well. I will have another series ready to go. And then uh, so uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, yeah, just just stay stay away from from the jungle. I would say for the for the most part, just it, just stay it, away. This entire series has been a PSA secretly. Don't don't go to the jungle. Just <laughs> just there's a lot of dangerous stuff in the jungle. Stay out of the jungle. Just gl- glance at it from far away. You know, like say like, oh, that looks beautiful in a very you know like rugged primitive way, and then just like I mean. Yeah, then just get the fuck out of there. So, <laughs> and then yeah, carry on with your life. All Smile right, and care. wave at it, then 